Good morning, good morning. It's a privilege and honor to get to gather with you all this morning uh, around God's Word to our, our visitors, to guests who are with us this morning. Welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, yeah, my name is Carson Myers. I'm a member here at Central Baptist Church. And um, yeah, it's a privilege, privilege to gather with you all. Right now, Adam and Travis are passing some papers out. Uh, just take one just per family unit, or if you came here alone, take one per individual. Um, those are copies of the CBC church covenant. You heard this mentioned earlier in the service already when uh, Kat was giving her testimony. She was sharing that in light of coming into uh, membership here at, at Central Baptist Church. And Lord willing, next week she'll be walking through this covenant to formally commit as a member together. Uh, during the month of May, during our sermon times, we have been having a special focus on the church covenant. Um, 
yeah, you might remember first week of May, we were talking about the concept of forgiveness and reconciliation. And uh, the last few weeks, we were talking about abiding. But each of these topics started because these are foundational pieces of the church covenant, what we are all committed to as members here at CBC. And so, uh, yeah, to make it clear, to be a member here at Central Baptist Church, it means that we've come together in covenant community. Uh, as a church, we've made this document uh, that kind of outlines our agreement, our commitment to one another. It has 11 basic commitments. Um, yeah, the first two, or two of them are about things we believe. I uh, see the first point on there is a, a basic profession of the gospel. Uh, the final one on there is a more extended uh, list of doctrinal affirmations. Uh, but the nine articles in between are, are commitments to the way that we will live, the way that we will uh, carry our lives as, as individuals and together as a church. So uh, today during our sermon, we're going we're gonna to look at the covenant from a little different angle than we have for the uh, prior weeks this month. Previously, we were looking at specific points and kind of driving down deep. But today we're going to approach it from the angle of asking, what's the nature of, of this church covenant? How do we, as believers who are free in Christ, relate to it? I don't know if you've ever noticed this tension before, if you've ever felt this, but we, we are free people in Christ. That's how our text today in Galatians 5.13 starts out. You are free in Christ, unburdened by any kind of law. And if that's true, then what's the purpose of a church covenant? Why do we have this? Why are there commandments in the, the New Testament? for that matter. We'll say there, there is no verse in Scripture that says you as a church must have a church covenant. It's not there. However, we as a church have counted it wise and good to form this document to make it clear what we understand it to mean to be a member of any church, but especially our church here at CBC. Uh, during this, uh, in this covenant, we have commitments like to prioritize this weekly gathering time that even when we're tired, even whenever it's uncomfortable, we're going to prioritize being here to gather with the church. Uh, we commit to give of our financial resources uh, to the ministry of the church, to the advancement of the gospel. We make that commitment. We commit to give ourselves to the study of Scripture day by day to grow in our spiritual lives. Uh, we commit to submit to the teachings of the Scripture uh, to repent of any sin that comes to light. So my question is this morning is, does this kind of commitment make sense? Are freedom in Christ and formal verbal commitment to a church covenant compatible? As you might guess, I'm going to argue that yes, these things are absolutely compatible and they're good for us. But here's the outline of my argument this morning. I believe that sacrificial love is at the heart of the church covenant. I believe that sacrificial love is what's at the heart of the church covenant. And my purpose this morning is to show that those who understand their freedom in Christ will embrace every opportunity for sacrificial love. So sacrificial love is at the heart of our church covenant in that anyone who understands our freedom in Christ will embrace every opportunity for sacrificial love. So it's kind of a two-step argument this morning. I'll try to navigate that well. Um, I, I've put a, an outline of the sermon in your bulletin. So if you have a bulletin with you this morning, that might help you uh, to take notes and to, uh, to track along. You see there that the title of the sermon this morning is Three Aspects of Christian Freedom Which Validate the Church Covenant. So I'm going to pray for us and we'll, we'll start into the text. 
Lord God, thank you for this morning that we have to gather to open your word together. Every time that we get to, to be with the saints, to worship you, to pray, to read from your word, Lord, it is, a, it is a miracle and it is a blessing. It is a gift of your grace. Help us, Lord. Help us to benefit from uh, this time together this morning that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, uh, teaching our minds to, to understand you and the life that you've given us in Christ. And Lord, I pray that, that you would be glorified by the teaching of your word this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, three aspects of Christian freedom which validate the church covenant. Number one is this, because we are free from the burden of the law. We ought to embrace every opportunity for sacrificial love, because we are free from the burden of the law. So verse 13 begins this way. It says, you were called to freedom, brothers. You're free. This declaration that you are free is the very core of the argument of the book of Galatians. The whole argument of the book is that salvation and sanctification are accomplished by faith and not by works, by the Spirit and not by the law, and that therefore the Christian life ought to be characterized by both freedom and love. That's the argument of the whole book. This contrast between freedom and slavery has been building since the beginning of the book, but it comes really pronounced in chapter 4 where, using the analogy of Abraham's two wives, Sarah and Hagar, he says, you are children of the free woman and not of the slave. Look at, at chapter 4, verse 31. Here's the end of that line of thought. He says, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be children of freedom and not of slavery? So some background, at that time in the churches of Galatia, there was a, a mixed group that was gathered together in worship. It's composed of believers from the Jewish background who had been the people of God for years and years and years prior. And from the Gentile background that had no knowledge of God until they heard the gospel message. They each made professions of faith, were baptized into the faith, and joined together in covenant church community. But sometime down the road, the idea crept into the minds of the, the Jewish Christians who had been in the covenant people of God for many years that the Gentile Christians were somehow not quite still spiritually clean. The Jewish Christians affirmed that it was good that these Gentiles had heard the gospel, that they had received Jesus as the Messiah, repented and believed. However, they thought that the, the Gentile Christians should not be fully accepted as members of the covenant community until they embraced all aspects of the Old Testament law, namely circumcision. So the Gentiles were not circumcised. The Jews were. And on that grounds, there was a thick spiritual barrier erected between these two groups, so severe that the, the Jewish Christians would not even eat a meal at the same table as their Gentile brothers in Christ. And Paul had a problem with this. Paul loved his Old Testament. He loved his Torah, and he knew it well. So, when Paul heard Jesus' teaching that in Christ the law was not abolished, but it was fulfilled, Paul knew exactly what that meant. He knew that the veil in the temple had been torn, and that all who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ are free to, to come into the Holy of Holies and enter into the presence of God as priests. So, 
He was not about to let these Jewish party of the circumcision push his Gentile brothers back out into the outer courts. You see that? Even more, he was not about to let his Jewish brothers and sisters, or his Gentile brothers and sisters who were saved by grace, lose the power and authenticity of their testimony. That their salvation was by any other means than the blood of Christ at the cross. So Paul was addressing a real issue with this letter, and he was convictional about it. Every other letter that's recorded from Paul in Scripture begins with some sort of thanksgiving or personal encouragement. Not this one. In paraphrase, he starts his letter out and says, To the church of Galatia, I can't even believe you guys right now. You've abandoned the gospel. What are you doing? And then he builds this argument up to chapter 4, verse 31, where he pronounces that we are children of the free woman and not of the slave. And he says, Jews and Gentiles alike, here's the point. If you are in Christ, you are not under the law. Read with me 4, verse 31, and the, the few verses that follow. It says, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. 5, verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you at all. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And you are severed from Christ. You who would just be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. That's severe. Paul was passionate about this matter, that his Gentile brothers need not be circumcised. Because to be circumcised would give them the understanding that they were still under the old covenant that they were still under the Torah, the law. And Paul compares one's spiritual existence under the law to that of slavery, and he says it will burden you and crush you. But look at this. This is interesting. Back in our text today, 5 verse 13, it says, You were called to freedom, brothers. However, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Here's his reasoning. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there's a tension there. Am I right? Paul's saying on one hand, you are not under the burden of the law anymore. That's been removed from you. You're free in Christ. And just 12 verses later, he's using the law that has been fulfilled to give instruction on how the believers ought to live. So somehow, somehow in Paul's mind, the law of the Torah has been fulfilled, but was still relevant for the life of those who are in Christ. To understand this, we we have to understand the way that the Jews thought about their, their law, about the Torah. See, in their understanding, the law was something to be lived under. It was like a covering. That is to say, their relationship with God was mediated through the law. Circumcision, dietary restrictions, uh, routines of going to the temple for sacrifices. This was the pathway to their relationship with God. Their standing with God was maintained by it. Their justification before God, being counted as innocent, being forgiven of their sins, was accomplished through it. And to be fair, that was a relatively biblical way to think. 
God said in his law that those who do the law shall live by it. So if you were to ask a Jew the question, how can one live before God and not die? The answer would be, do the law. And so, in this sense, the, the, Jewish, uh, the Jews envisioned that the full extent of their obedience to the law, the full extent of perfect law-keeping, they might come close enough to the tree of life to reach out and grab it. They might take hold of the fruit of righteousness for themselves. But at the same time for those Jews, those who were under the law, they had a fearful expectation that if they veered off the course to the left, to the right, that they would find themselves unclean, cast out of covenant community, and cursed by God. And that, too, was a biblical way to think. So you can see how these Jewish Christians who are accustomed to life under the law might struggle to understand what it means to be under the covering of Christ. That the law had been fulfilled in Christ. So Paul wrote this letter to help them to understand, to correct the course He didn't tell the Jews that the law was bad or that it was wrong. No, he affirmed it. He said it was good and it was right and it was from God. However, he wrote in this letter to the Jews that because of Christ's fulfilling work, they were using the law in a completely wrong way. There's been a change here. But it wasn't a new change. He, He points back. He says, remember the time before Moses. What did God tell Abraham? How does Abraham live before God and not die? The righteous shall live by faith. Before Moses, before your relationship with God was mediated through the law of Moses, it was mediated through the law or through the covenant of Abraham. And under Abraham, the righteous shall live by faith. And that still stands. So how do you live and not die before God? It's a matter of having faith. For these Christians who had come to understand the gospel, they they knew that. That life in Christ was to be received by faith, not by the law. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 6, he says, Those who are in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. Only faith working through love. Are we tracking together? Righteousness before God is accomplished by faith in the work of Christ to fulfill the law, not in our work under it. That said, at the same time, Paul uses the law to give instruction. Right? So we definitely do not disregard the law. No, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in Righteousness. The law was breathed out by God. And therefore, it's incredibly valuable to us. So we do not throw it away. Here's the point. Law cannot produce life. The law cannot produce righteousness. But it can absolutely train you in it. The law cannot give you life, but it can show you how to make good of your life once you have it in Christ. 
It can show you how to work out your faith. Paul says in 5 verse 6 of Galatians that faith ought to do something. Faith ought to be worked out through love. So think of it this way. The law was not cut out to be a parent. Couldn't give life. Couldn't birth you. Didn't love you. No, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that the law was not cut out to be a parent, but it was a fantastic school teacher. Right? You can learn a lot from it. And so that's why Paul continues to use the law, though it has been fulfilled, to instruct the Christians in Galatia to love one another. Uh, the next, next verse, chapter 5, verse 15, he, he tells them, if you, uh, if you bite and devour one another, be careful. If you don't love one another and you act in pride towards one another in a dog-eat-dog kind of way, be careful. You're going to consume one another. Right? And this is, in effect, what they were doing. These Jews that were trying to impose the law, the commandments, over their Gentiles and brothers and sisters, you're beating each other up. You who care about enforcing what's secondary in the law, like why don't you pay attention to the law and do what's primary and love your neighbor as yourself? I want to make this really clear. I know this is uh, some, some thick stuff. But the first point is this. Because we are free from the burden of the law, we're actually free to approach it in the right way. Living with a fulfilled law helps us to step back from under it and to see God's heart in it, to see its original intent, and to benefit from it. So, CBC, we still have Leviticus and Deuteronomy in our Bible. We didn't throw them away. Like, they're for you. We don't live under fear of the blessings or curses anymore. No, Christ has fulfilled the law, and we have blessing upon blessing in Him. But we still look to Leviticus and Deuteronomy with the primary ambition to profit from how it can teach and train us in righteousness. So let's be faithful to go back and study our Old Testament. This summer, our, our sermon series is going to be going through the book of 1 Kings. Right? Life and time under a different covenant. And so life for the kings in 1 Kings was much different than it is for us. But we can benefit so much from learning from them. Brothers and sisters, we're not slaves under that law anymore. We're not under it. Our relationship with God is not mediated through a law. Our relationship with God is mediated through Christ. And I think it's good for us to think of our church covenant in the same way. Right? Our, our church covenant has some formal commitments, some, some laws, if you will, some obligations that should conform our life. But, but that Church covenant is not designed to mediate our relationship with God. Christ mediates our relationship with God. Yet, insofar as the things in this church covenant align with the heart of God and the words of Scripture, like it's good for us. It's, those things are for you, for us. And we can learn so much from them by doing them. So point number one is this. Because we are free from the burden of the law, that means we're free to approach it in the right way. We ought to embrace every opportunity for sacrificial love. This is at the heart of the law. It's at the heart of our church covenant. So that's point number one. Point number two in your notes is this. 
Because we are free to walk in the Spirit. Because we're free to walk in the Spirit, we will embrace every opportunity for sacrificial love. I read with me uh, from, from chapter 5, verses 16 and following. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These two things are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you were led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So in these verses, Paul's combating the false assumption that receiving the gospel message would lead people to become complacent in their sin. Right? The assumption that, that if you come to Christ and think that you're saved by grace and His righteousness and not your own, the false assumption was that that might lead people to be complacent in their sin. Plus, that assumption is absurd. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to belong to Christ. That's why Paul says confidently in 5 verse 16, if you walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. It doesn't work that way. You won't do it. So, so it's a good question to ask. Like, How do we do that? How do we walk in the Spirit so we do not gratify the desires of the flesh? It's actually pretty simple. It's supernatural, but simple. You see, walking in Scripture, it's a, it's a concept that refers to putting one step after another, ordering your life and your steps. To walk in something is to exercise it, to progress down the path of something. You might compare this, this reference to walking in the Spirit to other places in the New Testament where believers are instructed to do things like walk in repentance, walk in faith, walk in wisdom. To walk in something is to work it out from some abstract concept to practical application in your life. To live in the reality of it. To let its influence affect everything you do. So to walk in the Spirit is to let the, the influence of God's Spirit dwelling in you to affect your life. To affect the decisions you make. To affect your thoughts and your emotions, your, your principles and your priorities. Your relationships, your daily routine. Every single step you take by, day by day, walking by the Spirit. And if you do that, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. He's saying as, as Christians, we are indwelled by the Spirit. And therefore, our life flows out from a different source. The picture here is that coming to Christ is like being born again to a brand new life. From that point on, you start breathing different air. So we don't, we don't live in the flesh anymore. We live in the spirit. So we don't walk in the flesh anymore. We walk in the spirit. So Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. In this life that I'm living now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And sure, sure, there may be a daily tension between the flesh and the spirit in my life. There might be a, a pulling of opposite directions here. But these two things are, are, are still both active in our lives, and they're opposed to each other. But those who are in Christ are alive in the Holy Spirit. And therefore, as we walk in the Spirit, we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. You see, it matters the way that we walk. We're under grace. 
The law has been fulfilled for us, and it matters the way that we walk. This is different than being under the law. All right? We have a different kind of covering. We have a different mediator in our relationship between us and God. A different pathway to pursue God. You don't pursue God by doing the law. You pursue God by walking in the Spirit. And if you are led by the Spirit, you will do all that the law of God would require of you anyways. So how do we, how do, we do that? If you want to walk in the Spirit, like, how, how do you tell what the desires of the Spirit are as compared to the desires of the flesh? What's the difference between these two things? Here's how I understand it. I think the desires of the Spirit and the desires of the flesh are, are actually pretty similar. They're similar desires that are pointed in opposite directions and lead to dramatically different outcomes. They're similar desires pointed in opposite directions that lead to dramatically different outcomes. It might sound strange at first to say that the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit are, are similar, but, but they are. I think at the core of each of those things, what the Spirit desires, what the flesh desires, uh, I'll put these three. Justification, glorification, gratification. To use, uh, to put it more simply, you might say my honor, my glory, and my pleasure. That's what both of these things want. So the flesh and the spirit both seek honor, glory, and pleasure. However, they go to very different sources to find them. They're set in opposite directions. The flesh looks to itself. I want to justify myself. I want to glorify myself. I want to gratify myself. And with myself as the standard, I will go through whatever channel promises to give me what I want. Does that sound familiar? I think we know exactly what that looks like and feels like. I want people to respect me. I want people to think highly of me. I want this for myself or that for myself. I, I deserve it. This is my truth. This is the way that I am. As if one's internal cravings and impulses are the trustworthy standard for determining right and wrong. Brothers and sisters, what seems like it will feel good is not always good. The flesh will lie to you. And if you walk in it, the destructive works of the flesh will be right out there in the open. They will be evident. That's what Paul says in... Chapter 5, verse 19, he says, Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. The list could go on. Since I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. All kinds of ugly things proceed 
out of a flesh-driven soul. Proceed out of a heart that's bent on justifying itself, glorifying itself, and gratifying itself. And Paul says in 5 verse 21, says, I'm warning you guys. As I warned you before, those who do these kind of things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are not the kinds of things that the kingdom of Christ is made of. This is not the life that Christ died to prepare you for. No. Those whose lives are habitually marked by the works of self-justification, self-glorification, and self-gratification will not inherit the kingdom of God because they are not of it. Friends, we should, we should hear those words with proper weight. The works of the flesh are, are not part of the life that Christ has prepared for you. He does not save people for those things. I said by the grace of God, by the cross of our Savior, He can save you from them. Through simple repentance and faith, we who have done the worst of sins, we whose lives have been marked by the works of the flesh can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and made clean for the kingdom. And if you do, you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 4, verses 4 and following, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, chapter 4, verse 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit changes everything. The Spirit transforms everything. Because the Spirit opens our eyes to a brand new orientation. He opens our eyes to the proper channel for pursuing honor and glory and pleasure. He opens our eyes to see the face of our Lord Jesus Christ and our God to help us to walk in the Holy Spirit. Over in the book of Romans, chapter 8, he says, Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of your sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who what? Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Listen, if you're here this morning and you are not currently in Christ, if you've not made a profession of faith, I want you to hear this word. If you come to Christ and receive him as your Lord and Savior, your relationship with God will change. How will it change? If you're in Christ, God will receive you as his very own child. And he'll give you his spirit within you to breathe life into you. He will dwell in you. He will abide in you. He will be like a, be like a vine. And you'll be like a branch. 
right? And the purpose of your life will just be to cling as closely to him as you can. It will change everything about your life. (laughs) And there you will find that the greatest desires of your heart, the things you've been searching for your whole life, to be honored, to be glorified, to have satisfaction in life, you will find them in him. And your honor and your glory and your pleasure, you'll find that they were ultimately found, or they were designed to be ultimately and eternally found in his honor and his glory and his pleasure. That your life and your identity were created by him and for him and through him, and this will change you. You'll no longer have to claw and fight for your own reputation, for your own gratification anymore. You will be secure and free to live for the glory of him who called you out of darkness and into the glorious light. The desires of your life will be pointed in an entirely different direction. Similar desires pointed in an opposite direction with dramatically different outcomes. For those of us who are called, who are in Christ in this room, I just want to say if if your life is still in any way marked by an intense battle in any of these areas that are described in the works of the flesh, Realize that the problem you have is you haven't fully realized the gravity of your identity as a child of God. God loves you. If you know Christ, you will know the Holy Spirit. If you know the Holy Spirit, you will know God the Father. And if you know God the Father, you will know his love for you. And a love relationship with God is foundational for spiritual transformation. This is the very reason that God has put his Holy Spirit in his people. To lead you to a knowledge and understanding of the love of God. To cause your hearts to look up towards him and cry out, Abba, Father. Right? When we're in our flesh, we don't do that. When we're in our flesh, our lives are marked by guilt, shame, and fear. Because we know what's at the root of our hearts. But when God sends his Holy Spirit into your life, he changes the orientation of your heart where you're able to look up into the face of God and rejoice. Like God's love is for you in Christ. So brothers and sisters, next time you're tempted up to open up that laptop screen and indulge in sexual immorality, remind yourself that your greatest pleasure and glory and honor are designed to be found not in your own flesh, but in the pleasure, glory, and honor of Christ. And fight for that. Next time you're tempted to find your worth in your comparison to others and your social standing and if enough people like you, remind yourself that there is a God who loves you. Like your identity and your worth are found in Him. You're not under any kind of law. The one that God made or one you've made for yourself. You are free in Christ and God is for you. Like walk in that. you can grab hold of this there will be all kinds of beautiful transformation in your life love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control the kind of things that you were made for abide in Christ And by his Holy Spirit, your life will bear much, much fruit. 
You know what else Christ will give you? Secure justification. A promise of glorification. That day's coming. And gratification at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. Greater than anything this world has to offer. Similar desires pointed in opposite directions that lead to dramatically different outcomes. Verse 23, Paul says, if you live according to the Spirit, you don't need a law to govern you. There's not a law that's going to forbid anything that the Spirit's going to lead you into anyways. Why? Verse 24, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their flesh with its passions and desires. It's dead now. And their lives flow from an entirely different source. Read verse 25 with me. This is why we have a church government, though. Verse 25 says, if we live by the Spirit, let us what? Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, and if we're in Christ, we do. Let us also, as an instruction, as a command, let us make every effort to keep in step with the Spirit. It doesn't just happen. You have to walk in it. And so our church covenant is designed as a tool that will help you do exactly that. To walk in the Spirit. To order our steps, not as a new kind of law. Not as something to be over and to keep in submission those who we assume would not be otherwise. Right? It's not a new law. It's an illuminated path saying, walk this way. Because we are free from the burden of the law. Because we are free to walk in the Spirit, we will embrace every opportunity for sacrificial love, including our church covenant. All right, point number three. It's the last one. Point number three. Because we are free, because we are free for the harvest of eternal life, the harvest of eternal life, we will embrace the opportunity for sacrificial love. Because we are free for the harvest of eternal life. So chapter 5, starting in verse 26 and on into to chapter 6, it's where Paul turns the corner in this book of Galatians. He turns the corner into practical application. Building on the argument that we're free and that we're led by the fulfilled law and by the indwelling Holy Spirit in us to live lives of love towards one another. He gets practical with it. Thanks, brother. Starting in chapter, or, uh, verse 26 of chapter 5, he gets practical and he tells him, let's not become conceited. Provoking one another, envying one another. Remember in the context, this is functionally what the Jews were doing. They were using the, the law to make a metric to which they could measure themselves and create a righteousness ranking system within the church. Right? They were, they were proud. They were provoking one another. They were turned against one another. When someone struggled to keep up among them, right? They used these laws that, that they held to beat one another over the heads with it. Show up on time. Say your prayers. Do more. Keep up. Paul says, don't be like that. He says, brothers, if, if you've got somebody among you who's caught in any kind of transgression, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spiritual spirit of gentleness. 
Like if you find someone struggling in sin, like don't beat them up. If you're walking in the Holy Spirit, let the fruit of the Spirit be relevant in your life as you go to restore them. Serve them. Stoop down. He calls us in verse 2, bearing one another's burdens. And yes, he includes each other's sin as burdens that we should bear for one another. Sin is wrong. Sin is against God. Sin ought to be repented of. Sin is wicked. And sin is a burden we should have compassion for in each other's lives. We should care. Not be angry at one another for each other's sin. Not cast each other off for their sin. She said this. He did that. He's always this way. No. Like if you're walking in the Spirit, go and help them. Restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Yeah, we carry other kinds of burdens for sure. Like mourning with those who mourn. Helping those with a broke down car. Like looking out, scoping out the needs of each other's life. That's bearing one another's burdens. But that's not what Paul has in view when he says this in Galatians 6. He says, bear one another's transgressions. as burdens on your own life also. Their external difficulties in life, like walk with them through it. Their internal struggles in life, walk with them through it. To make it clear, the focus of this paragraph here, the start of chapter 6, it's not on the one who's caught in transgression. It's on everybody else in the Christian community. With irony, he tells them, these are the burdens that you're designed to carry in your Christian life. Right? Remember that. Chapter 5, verse 1. He says, you're free. Don't submit again to the burden of slavery. Like You're not made for that yoke. But here, just a chapter later, he says, take on these burdens. Let these things burden you and weigh your life down. Out of love for your brothers and sisters. So in uh, verses 1 through 5, he's telling about serving one another in their their weakness and their sins and transgressions. A little further down in verse 6, he talks about a different kind of burden. He tells the church that they are to give of their financial resources to support the ministry of those who teach. Right? Different kind of burden, but same concept. Bear one another's burdens for the glory of God, for the advancement of the gospel. He's saying, let your concern for the faithful preaching of God's word and the advancement of the gospel burden you. Yes, you're a free person. You can do with your money whatever you want. But if you understand your freedom in Christ, let this burden you. Being free in Christ does not mean that your manner of life doesn't matter. Right? Your manner of life, the decisions you make, the way that you live, have significance. That's why in chapter 6, verse 7, Paul says, Don't be deceived. Don't be foolish. God isn't mocked. Whoever, whatever one sows, that's what he's going to reap. This is the the New Testament harvester's principle. Whatever one sows, they're going to reap. In the Old Testament, it was different. God had built a code into the law, into Leviticus and Deuteronomy especially, a code of blessings and curses. 
It says, if you obey, you will receive the blessing of God. If you disobey, you will receive the curse of God. This was called retribution. Blessings and curses. But now, the law with all of its retributions have been fulfilled in Christ. The curse of God was laid on Christ our Savior. And in Him, we have no fear of condemnation, no fear of curse. Only blessing upon blessing from God forevermore. And at the same time, God is not a fool. God is not mocked. Your actions still have consequences. The harvester's principle still applies for those who are free in Christ. Whatever we reap, we will sow. Or whatever we sow, we will reap. If we sow into the flesh, we'll reap corruption. I don't think that's a reference to hell. I think that's a, life, or a reference to a life that's completely wasted and is only going to bear the kind of things that are here in this earth. Like, it'll be laid in the grave and it'll be corrupt. If you sow into the flesh, that is all you're going to get. But if you sow into the Spirit, you will put your life investment into something that will last forever. If you sow into the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. Remember last week in John 17, 3? What is eternal life? Eternal life is that we know God the Father and Jesus whom He sent. To know Him. Not just to know about Him, to know Him. This is what the Holy Spirit is able to provide for you. If you sow into the Spirit, if you walk in the Spirit, if you orient your life to find your glory and honor and pleasure in the glory, honor, and pleasure of Jesus Christ, you will come to an intimate relationship and knowledge of Him who loved you and gave Himself for you. So brothers and sisters, we are free people, all right? We have opportunity to do all kinds of different things. We're like a farmer whose hands are full of seed. But know that you will reap what you sow. In verse 9 and 10, Paul connects sowing to the Spirit to loving one another and doing good towards other people, especially towards those who are in the household of faith. Read with me verses 9 and 10. Let's, let's read these two aloud together. If you've got uh, chapter 6, verse 9 with you, let's read it together. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Amen. He says, don't grow tired of doing good. Doing good will be tiring. You can book it. There will be a lot of days, a lot of times where you look at that church covenant sheet in front of you and say, I don't want to do that. It's not going to feel good. I'm tired. Taking on the burdens of other people is tiring. Loving other people is tiring. Sacrificial giving and serving and caring about people's problems is tiring. Like it's not always going to seem like the best pasture to plant your seeds in. But Paul says, if you want to reap eternal life, like if you want your life to be marked by knowing God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent, invest your life 
here. This is the right place to sow. Loving one another. Sacrificially loving one another. So this is the nature of our church covenant. Right? It tapes off the field that God has prepared for us and says, sow your life right here. Right, a different picture. This is like an investor's report that highlights the best options. It says, this is what you want to put your money on. It's like a treasure map with a big red X that says, this is where you find it. Right? Don't go out there. Right here. This is the life that you were saved for and prepared for. And this is where you refine the blessing of God. Invest in these ways. If we trust Jesus, we will. We'll be inclined towards sacrificial love. We'll be inclined to take our money and our skills and our time and our efforts and everything in our life and empty out our pockets, empty out our seed containers and make sure that everything we have is invested in the ground at the foot of the cross of Christ. And when the trumpet sounds... It's time for the harvest to come. You'll be thankful that you did. So let's do it. Let us live for sacrificial love, bearing one another's burdens. Let us be eager to do everything that the church covenant directs us to do. This isn't a matter of obligation. This is a matter of opportunity. He says that. He says, as you have opportunity. Let us do good to those who are of the household of faith. I don't think the assumption is that Christians are going to spend their life just, just hoping that maybe one day they'll get an opportunity to do something good to the household of faith. I think the assumption is that our lives are full of opportunity and we've got to look up and see them. Look for the opportunities. The fields are white. As you have opportunity, let us, let us do good to the house of faith. I'll wrap up with this. Uh, last Sunday, Sarah and I were out of town. Uh, we were getting to celebrate our five-year anniversary. We had a wonderful time. And we, uh, we were in Savannah, Georgia, and we got to, to go there and to, uh, to worship on Sunday with a, with a different church. Just a quick word of advice. Summer months are coming up, and a lot of us probably will travel to different places, get opportunity to visit friends or family, go on vacation. and um, yeah, Not as an obligation, but as an opportunity. I just encourage you, like when you're doing that this summer, Seek out opportunities to worship with different churches. Like look for ones that are solid in their faith, that affirm the gospel, and go visit with them on Sunday morning. Just, just see what the Lord's doing there. See what you can learn from your brothers and sisters in Christ and other churches. So we did that last Sunday morning. We, uh, we got to worship with First African Baptist Church of Savannah, Georgia. And, uh, man, it was a blessing. First African Baptist Church in Savannah, Georgia was the first black Baptist church founded in the country. Uh, sweet, sweet congregation. They love the Lord. It, it was honestly an awesome visit. It's a church with a ton of history as well. So uh, the group was founded, or the church was founded by a group of, of young, new believers that had come to faith under the, the ministry of a man named George Lyle. So George Lyle, at the time he came to faith, he was a slave. He was a black man in Burke County, Georgia in the late 1700s. And Lyle, when he was sitting one day under the preaching of God's word at a church, he came under the conviction of his own sin, that his righteousness could not be earned by his own merit, but was only available through the finished work of Christ on the cross. It was available to him to be received by faith. He, he made a profession of faith. And after his conversion, he was, he was in his slavery for another four years. But he was so burdened, he was so burdened 
for the lost condition of his people of his same color. That four years later, when the man who owned the rights to allow slavery set him free, he spent the rest of his life going from plantation to plantation, from town to town, proclaiming the gospel. Rather than using his freedom to, to go off and create a better life for him somewhere else, right? He spent his life in the, in the dirt, in the muck of other people's lives. He didn't primarily preach a gospel that promised freedom from earthly slavery. But he preached a gospel of freedom from sin. So he lived and ministered in South Georgia for, uh, for several years, but at some point his life and his freedom came under, under threat through persecution. At that time he moved to Jamaica. And there he carried out his ministry among enslaved peoples for many more years to come. So, a bit of history, but, but this church in Savannah, Georgia, it, it sits on a block of the city called the City Market. Much like our city market here in Kansas City, it's a, it's a tourist place now. Uh, gift shops and food, they're located right on the corner. One of the men in the church told us, he said, this intersection has been called the city market for a long time. But it didn't used to be gift shops here. Like right across the street, they sold people. And while slavery was abolished in Georgia many years ago, for the black brothers and sisters who were gathered to worship at First African Baptist Church of Savannah, the sound of being called to freedom in Christ, it hits different. But you know what they had on the front page of their hymnal? They had a copy of their church covenant. It was really solid. I think it was beautiful. Through Lau's ministry, there were thousands of people that came to faith, the majority of whom were enslaved or previously enslaved people. Thousands of people that came to faith. Dozens and dozens of churches formed. And you know the first thing, one of the first things he did to disciple new believers in their faith? He told them, form into a church, make a covenant together. As absolutely free people. He told them the first thing they ought to do is be eager to commit themselves to the blessing and burden of working in the harvest field of God. my question is what about us are we committed to these things like are we are we passionate about these things even at great cost to ourselves are we eager to embrace the opportunity for sacrificial love we should be we have a fulfilled law that shows us the heart of god and instructs us how to walk rightly before him we have the Spirit of God alive in us through Jesus our Lord that helps us. We have fields that are white for harvest with blessing in front of us. Like we ought to be eager to walk in sacrificial love. So brothers and sisters, let's look for every opportunity to do good to one another, to love one another. Out in the community, to the ends of the earth, but especially in the household of faith. So here's how we're going to wrap this up this morning. Uh, at the start of the sermon, we passed out copies of our, of our church covenant. I want you to go ahead and pull those out and have you in front of you. Here in just a moment, we're going to give uh, those who are members here at CBC an opportunity to verbally reaffirm our commitment to the CBC church covenant. Adam, did we have any extra the, extras of those? Could you bring me up one? Actually, I actually don't have one. So we're going to have an opportunity to, 
verbally reaffirm our, our commitment to the church covenant. Uh, for those of us who are in the room that are, that are visitors this morning, that are not members at CBC, I know that we're, we're really glad you're here. Um, we're, we're thankful that you've come to join us. But know that at this time you're going to be like friends that are sitting in on our family time. All right? So, yeah, absolutely observe and listen. Just sit quietly. Just ask you, ask you not to speak up or to be uh, a full participant in this time. At the same time, we do want you to know, if you're a visitor here this morning, the, the door, the invitation is, is wide open to become part of the family. Right? To be a member of our church, uh, or any church for that matter, we, we do believe that uh, it's necessary that you be first a follower of Christ. So the first question to ask is, do you believe the gospel message that Jesus Christ, God's only Son, was sent into the world by God the Father to be a sacrifice for your sins? Upon repenting of your sins, have you trusted in Christ alone to save you? If the answer to that is yes, the promise of Christ is this, is that you will be forgiven from the penalty of your sin, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if you're visiting this morning, start there. Have you believed the gospel message? Do you believe that that is true? To our visitors this morning who are already in Christ, but not currently a member of a local church, just want to ask you to, to listen in and consider, what's holding you back? What would stop you from putting your yes on the table to invest your life alongside us at CBC? If you're here today and uh, you're wanting to know more about following Christ or joining in covenant with the church, uh, look for somebody around you who's, who's affirming this church covenant and, and talk to them about it after the service. They'll be happy to talk to you. So, yeah, for now, those of us who are members here at CBC, I want to invite you to, to pull out that, that copy of the church covenant, and, and we're going to walk through it together and have a time of re-commitment. So uh, starting from the top, it says, as a church community, we believe that it's of great importance to form a covenant together for the following reasons. Our Lord Jesus Christ instituted the new covenant by shedding his blood, thus demonstrating his great love for the church. He initiated a covenant with us. And number two, he commanded us as his disciples to love one another in the same way that he has loved us. Therefore, on those grounds, we desire to form a covenant community with one another in order to best demonstrate the same love towards each other that Jesus has shown for his church. So with the glorious new covenant in mind, will you now reaffirm this covenant with the members of Central Baptist Church by the grace of God in the following ways? If so, answer, we do. All right? Number one, you commit to affirm the gospel message that Jesus Christ, God's only Son, was sent into the world by God the Father to be a sacrifice for our sins and that upon repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ alone to save us from the penalty of sin, we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So answer, we do. We do. Do we commit to grow and mature in our faith through the consistent reading of God's word? Do we commit to be faithful to regularly attend and participate when the church is gathering together? We do. Do we commit to submit to the elders of the church as well to the rest of the body as long as we are being held accountable to the teachings of Scripture? We do. Do we commit to repent of any sin that we have committed when it is brought to light through the Scriptures and the conviction of the Holy Spirit? We do. Do we commit to use our gifts to serve and build up the members of the church? Do we commit to refrain from tearing down the body through gossip or slander? We do. Do we commit to be reconciled if conflict ever arises between church members, according to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20? We 
Do we commit to give of our financial resources to support the ministry of Central Baptist Church? Do we commit to seek to win new disciples for Jesus Christ through regularly sharing the gospel with unbelievers? Lastly, do we commit to affirm the Baptist faith and message 2000s? This is the basic doctrinal statement of Central Baptist Church. Brothers and sisters, let us not grow weary of doing good. It's a lot of hard work ahead of us represented in that church government. A lot of decisions that might not feel good in the moment, but will lead to the blessing of eternal life. Let's not grow tired of that. For in due season, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, you have been so, so good to us. Lord, it's by your mercy that you have set us free from the law of sin and death. God, you've brought us into a standing before you where we fear no condemnation. Lord, your, your love is for us. Lord God, I pray for, for us, for each individual in this room, God, that we would, we would know the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. We would experience the blessing of freedom in you. God, I pray that you would help us to walk in the Spirit, to come to know you more and more, that as we know you, we would be compelled to live like you and to lay our lives down for the glory of your name and for the good of others in this world. God, help us not to grow tired, not to count other things as uh, more promising or more important, but that we would orient our lives around your heart and your word. We would walk by faith, walk by your Spirit day by day. God, I pray that you would strengthen those who are weak and who are weary in their commitment. God, that they would not grow discouraged, they would not give up. God, that you would uphold those who are, who are low, who are, who are broken. God, I pray that you would, you would bring into line those who have been straying in, in disobedience or foolishness, God, that you would give correction through your word, that you would train us in righteousness, God, that you would help us to walk in a way that is wise and makes the best use and investment of our lives. God, I pray that the lies of this world would not seep in and have any hold on our church. God, that we would not make any idols for ourselves or anything that we would live for other than the glory of your name. God, preserve that in us, please. God, and I pray that this church will bear much, much fruit to the glory of your name for the advancement of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.